Governor Kasich and lawmakers face off with labor unions. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Karen Kassler, Statehouse Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and TV. Daryl Rowland, Senior Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Gene Krebs of the Greater Ohio Policy Center. And Joseph Moss, Chairman of the Ohio Hispanic Coalition. The declaration, the formal declaration of war between public employee unions and GOP lawmakers came this week. Public employee unions would be stripped of much of their bargaining power under a bill supported by Republican lawmakers. The bill introduced by Senator Shannon Jones would end collective bargaining for state workers. It would end binding arbitration for local police and fire unions who cannot strike. No more would experience or education bring automatic pay hikes for local workers. And local public union members would have to pay at least 20 percent of their health insurance. Governor Kasich says he generally supports that bill and adds he'd like to punish public employees who go on strike. Darrell, this is pretty tough language and pretty tough legislation. Uh, Governor Kasich said, fasten your seatbelts. I think he's, he's living up to that. Um, first and fundamentally, this underscores elections matter in this country, in this state. Elections have consequences. Uh, we wouldn't be seeing this, obviously, under uh, a Ted Strickland administration. Um, on the other hand, it should be no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention. I talked to John Kasich for one of our hot-button issues where we usually talk about abortion and capital punishment, issues of that nature. Uh, but we start talking about labor unions, and suddenly that became a hot-button issue in the context of the 2010 campaign. And obviously that's, uh, that's playing out in spades now. Um, how much are union contracts and pay for public employees to blame for the state budget situation? It doesn't appear to be. As a matter of fact, there was a recent study by a professor from Rutgers that suggested that, in effect, it does not have a detrimental impact and may have a positive uh, impact in uh, at least having a, a stable uh, base uh, of, of for salaries in the state or in, in particular communities. However, that, that, that group that he did the work for is 29% funded by labor unions. So when they say things <laughs> like that, you kind of go, oh, okay. I think one other thing to think about with the collective bargaining is to look at it in the larger context of governance reform. And this goes to the issue of how, you know, how are we going to govern ourselves? And even three years ago, I was in Massachusetts at a conference, and a Democrat mayor, which is a redundant statement in Massachusetts, said he needed to get collective bargaining reform if he's going to be able to govern more effectively. And I think when you look at this, it, we have 41 local governing bodies per county in Ohio. The national average is 21. If we could just get to be average, That'd be a huge improvement for us in Ohio to get our core costs down low if we're going to compete. Now, we talked to a law expert at OSU, and he said the states that have collective bargaining and the states that don't are pretty much the same with the amount of red ink that they have. The, the deficit levels in this economy is the same whether you have collective bargaining or you don't for state employees. Well, I think the people who support these kind of changes in collective bargaining say that it's not necessarily something that will result immediately. It's long-term. It's down the road. It's things that need to change, as Gene was suggesting, long-term governance reform. But that exactly is the point that unions and others will say that the impact is not immediate. You know, if you change collective bargaining, it's not like you're going to cut the $8 billion out of the state budget no. that you need to. 
Right, exactly. And this is part, uh, there's a, you know, they, we have a 100-day window. we got to get some stuff done. We also have a 10-year window. We have to get some things done. And the whole issue of governance reform comes back to a, a longer-term problem in many of the situations, fixing the problem here. Certainly the, the advocates for the, the state employees especially, but also local governments around the state are saying, hey, we've kind of done our part. Where we've taken furloughs, we've taken cuts or pay freezes, uh, staffing uh, at the state level actually decreased uh, under Governor Strickland for the first time in a long, long time. So to say they are the problem right. could be a hard argument to make. And the dispatch did a great story a year ago where you pointed out very accurately that we could fire every state employee and get halfway through the right. state budget. That's, that's $4 billion, right. Yeah. And the other thing is, though, is that still we, uh, the state is 34th on the state tax obligation, but we're ninth highest on local tax obligations. So in other words, and this goes to the issue of the budget, if they cut the local government fund and other ways we transfer wealth to local governments, it's still going to need to be fixed somehow. Now what is going to be the pushback from the unions? What kind of reaction are they going to see? I'd, I'd like to think that about the first step that they can take is to withdraw their support for local candidates. Because at the state level, they tend to to back the Democratic candidates, but they're going to have to do something to perhaps get some support at the local level so that those Republican candidates can then put pressure on the, the ones that are introducing these bills. We saw a bit of that union outpouring of anger or support again, or opposition to sure. this this week when we were what, a thousand or so union yeah. members at the, at the State House. And this was interesting because it was sponsor testimony. It was the first time we heard oh, yeah. about this bill. <laughs> so this is typically a time when the sponsor gets up and just explains what the bill would do. And here are so many union members mm -hmm. that they had to clear out the atrium in the State House and set up chairs mm -hmm. for them to sit there. There were so many people, and this was one of the largest hearing rooms in the State House. So this shows you there was a lot of interest, a lot of people flooding to find out what was actually going to be in this bill, which it was a placeholder, like a one-paragraph placeholder. It was replaced with a 500-page bill. So this, there's a lot of material here. Let's get to the, the, to the whether or not public employees are overcompensated, undercompensated. The Economic Policy Institute looked at that, looked at Ohio's public employees and found that basically they're undercompensated by 4 to 6 percent compared to their peers in the private sector. Also, it looked at education. It found that public employees in Ohio are more highly educated than those in the private sector. But it also found that the college-educated state employee makes about 25 percent less than the college-educated private sector employee. Uh, are public employees being made a scapegoat in this whole budget crisis? I don't, I don't think it's an issue of scapegoat. I don't think they're being blamed necessarily, but I do think that they are a ready-made target and something that perhaps the folks that got elected this past November promised to do. I think clearly it's overstating it to say that, you know, our state employees or state and local employees are the the reason, again, for this mm -hmm. budget crisis now, which is not to say there, is n there are no reforms needed. I uh, think, you know, the public mm -hmm. pension systems are, mm -hmm. are in a mess and just recently proposed plans to, to dig themselves back to fiscal solvency. Yeah. Uh, there's prevailing wage issues on state construction projects, so there's all sorts of interlocking and, and complex issues. Yeah, and you look at even the, the Gund and the Cleveland Foundation have, have started to ask everybody to take a very close look at this whole issue of tenure and, you know, you know your recent, high, recent teacher hires or your first, ones, your first ones fired. And this goes to the issue of, I used to be on a school board. 
And what our labor attorney told us was, you have six inches of documentation before you fire anybody. Now, what that meant was is that when they were in their last years of their contract and they decided to go ahead and slough off, it became very difficult. So what you're seeing is not, it's also the work rules, it's the flexibility from the management perspective. What they're trying to get to is, and this goes to the issue of, you know, we're, Ohio is completely upside down as to where we are in our spending in the classroom versus, you know, the administration, all this But is the solution stuff. then to just do away with the union or to really cut back the union, or is it the solution to take on individual issues, whether it be tenure, whether it be the prevailing wage, whether it be, you know, termination of, of employees? I think this is a big issue that a lot of people seem like they're angry about, this issue of tenure and, and um, firing teachers, and, mm -hmm. and you've got these databases out there that show how much public employees make, and you, these are easy to point to and say, this is why I'm angry. And these public employee unions may not have done the best job of selling themselves to people. These are important jobs. These are people, and most of the people who do them are very good, very well qualified. So I think there's an idea of tapping into some of that anger and, and, and changing these rules because people are upset that there is this budget crisis that it's hard to get your hands around. And it's odd to, to, to get your hands around because, you know, all these were enacted through the democratic governance process here, mm -hmm. often by local government entities. I mean, no one forced state legislators to mandate that the teachers get 15 sick days a year or that the step increases are enshrined in state law for every teacher in, in the state of Ohio. And people are angry about those things. Some people are, well, whereas you have the unions that say, hey, we bargain in fair and good faith for these things and we mm -hmm. deserve these things because we are professionals just like anybody else out yeah. there. But the difference is, is that at the, what we get the pushback, though, is that the private sector, when they have a union, there's always a profit motive. And the public sector does not have the same profit motive constraint upon it. So, you know, you need to come up with ways to give management flexibility. You know, you don't have a profit motive constraint on here. And if I, if I were the, advising the labor unions, I would say sit down right away and begin negotiating and not declare open war like you saw in the atrium. You know, you had people being taken who, out of there. Who declared? Was it, the, was it uh, Senator Jones or was it the unions who declared the war? You know. <laughs> I think you and I would probably disagree. Yeah, I think Senator Jones. All right. Well, and, and Governor Kasich has come back with his own, mm -hmm. saying if this bill doesn't meet his specifications, he's got his own ideas yeah. for what he wants to see. Yeah. Out. But at the same time, I keep going back to the, 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 the collective bargaining thing is just one aspect of we're going to have to completely rearrange our whole educational governance, our local governance, how we do everything, and you know, yes, hold on tight. It's going to be a very rough ride. Okay. Lawmakers are considering a controversial bill that would give Ohio the most restrictive anti-abortion law in the nation. The bill was introduced by State Rep. Lynn Watchman of Northwest Ohio. He is chairman of the House Health Committee. His bill would prohibit abortion when a beating heart can be detected. That could be as early as the third week of pregnancy. Karen Kessler, the head of the anti-abortion group Ohio Right to Life, does not support this bill. Right. Why not? He says there's no way it's going to be upheld as being constitutional. So why work for something that you know doesn't stand a chance in court? Because you've got 38 years of case law behind this. You've got the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, in its current state not being likely to rule this particular ban as being constitutional. Also, Ohio Right to Life is vested in a bill that they would like to see pass that was introduced about a week ago that would ban abortions at about the 20-22 week point, which they say is the point at which a fetus is 
is viable outside the body. So they say that one is definitely more likely to be upheld in the court than the the heartbeat bill, which is what the, uh, the, the other bill is being called. But there's a lot of pressure on state lawmakers to pass that heartbeat bill. You're seeing national groups that are getting involved. The, um, the former legislative director of Ohio Right to Life, Janet Folger, Porter mm -hmm. now, um, mm -hmm. she came back to Ohio to work on this bill. She says people in other states are looking at it, uh, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, Kansas. So there's definitely the idea that Ohio could be a, a testing ground for this because half of the Ohio House has co-sponsored this bill. So it, the chances of passing the House anyway are, are pretty good. I would think so. I mean, when you've got half the House co-sponsoring it, it seems like got there's 42, a... 42, uh, I think, have co-sponsored it. But I, I agree with Karen. I, I don't really think that there is a chance, and I think everybody seems to agree, that this thing is going to pass constitutional muster uh, with respect to the viability standard. Uh, so is it another symbolic type of legislation, not unlike perhaps I, I, SB 1070? I think it is because I think it almost, for people who are on the fence, it could make the post-viability abortion ban look more moderate, look more palatable. And mm. so it, it almost in a way changes where the bar is that you want to set for when is an abortion okay and when it's not. I think that there may be a little bit of a symbolic effort here to try to move that bar and say, okay, mm. you know, you think the heartbeat bill is extreme? What about this? Is this better? Mm -hmm. Why with the state's unemployment rate at over 9% and with the state facing an $8 billion deficit, is this becoming a, a if not topic number two, 1A. I mean, why, why is this such a big deal right now? Well, that's what a lot of, a lot of people are asking. And you're seeing this in Washington as well. It's like, mm -hmm. gee, we thought we put Republicans in charge to fix the, you know, fix the budget and the, the economy. I, that was mm -hmm. what the campaign was about, mm -hmm. not these social issues. Mm -hmm. In Ohio, there is a little time out now because we're not going to see a budget until March 15th. Mm -hmm. So we have this downtime. Um, and the House, you know, going back to Republican hands, uh, the Senate, you know, even more so in Republican hands, they, they want to run with some of this stuff before they get bogged down in the budget. So, and but that is a good question. I think activists nationwide are starting to think that this is the time to get what they want to get done, done. And so they're looking at Ohio and other states where you do have strong Republican majorities, that this is the opportunity to propose these bills and get them moving. Gina, yeah. is, there a, is, is there a chance that this could backfire on Republicans that are going too far right with this abortion, anti-abortion legislation yeah. and yeah. taking on the unions yeah. so hard? Um, this goes to the issue of appealing to your base, keeping your base satisfied, happy. What I find very interesting about the abortion issue is this is a very emotional issue, and yet Ohio Right to Life has taken, the, has taken an almost like a military strategy assessment on this. We're going to go for this target. We're not going to go to that target because we think that target's achievable. And they're getting some pushback inside their own core on this. And I just, from a pure policy perspective, I'm looking at this and I'm going, I've never seen this happen before. Where an or it's just like the Ohio Environmental Council saying, say, suddenly saying, coal mining is okay if you do it underneath these circumstances. It's a, this is an interesting shift to see how this is going to play out. I think it may have some implications. Is this the first part of this, or is this a new wave of how advocacy groups are going to see things? I don't know. But how are independents looking at this? I mean, the base is, yeah. you know, they're going to be for this. And the base on the other side is going to be yeah. very much against well, it, but I the folks that, in the middle. That's why I, I said I think this is kind of the incident between the extreme and the moderate or whatever. Yeah. And one thing I think is interesting about this bill is it takes away, there are no exceptions, as I understand it, for rape 
and incest. Mm -hmm. um, there are emergency exceptions for medical problems, but no exceptions for rape or incest, yeah. which has been a big discussion debate in the right to life mm -hmm. community is if mm -hmm. we allow abortion for rape or incest, well then isn't it still, you yeah. know, what we don't want? But I think I gotta go back to what Daryl mentions, that the moment the budget comes out and then I think then everything else in that chamber gets Sure. Everything yeah. else will be will be back burner. Well, look at the House Finance Committee. Thirty-one members out of a ninety-nine member chamber. That's almost a third of them. They're all going to be busy saying finance every day, all day. Been yeah, there, done and that. Their subcommittees as well. You yeah. know, the, the, the right to life position. I think we. I, I'll turn it on the other side of the coin. I mean, mm -hmm. we. I think their reasoning is. Why do this 10 week? If you if you were anti-abortion, why, why is 10 weeks okay? Yeah. If you're going to do something, you know, and the heck with what the courts have said, why not just go for the override ban? Well, yeah. they're, they're, they say that their goal is conception. That once the technology gets to the point where we can we can tell mm -hmm. that a, per a woman is pregnant right at conception, mm -hmm. that's when the ban should be. So their goal, they've made it very clear, that's their goal it's eventually. To essentially to eliminate it uh, completely. But yeah. I'm not sure that society has evolved in that direction. Let's get to our third topic. Democrats and supporters of the federal health care overhaul are mobilizing. They're targeting Attorney General Mike DeWine. They're calling on him to drop Ohio's lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the health care law. They call the lawsuit frivolous. But an Ohio judge, a you know, Florida judge last week, I should say, ruled in favor of the suit, which claims the congressional mandate that people buy insurance is unconstitutional. Joe Moss, what's the point of this protest? Yeah, and the, uh, well, the, the point of the protest is to protest. It's, it's an issue, <laughs> I think, that... I mean, that they don't think he's going to drop the suit. That conservatives uh, uh, have really uh, uh, rallied around, and, and it's, a, it's a rallying cry, and so on. And let me sort of get into the lowest common denominator. This has to do whether, with the question of whether the Commerce Clause has a limit. Mm -hmm. and, and up to now, the courts have been pretty liberal in allowing yeah. the Commerce Clause to permit anything. And we're talking about the individual mandate, of yes. course. The yeah. indi people have being to buy forced insurance. to buy insurance, which is the only way that mm -hmm. the prices can come down. Mm -hmm. So Mike DeWine joined the suit. Mm -hmm. Didn't have to. It's already in several other states. Well, he, he did have to because he campaigned. He was. Well, yes, so he did have to. <laughs> but the suit's going to go forward whether or not Ohio is a part yeah. of it or not. True. Um, so the Democrats and, and progressives trying to just make hay by bringing this anti, saying Republicans are anti health care. I, th I think I think the Democrats should be careful. Um, look, this may not be the right time for them. Uh, as we say, you know, back on the farm, this is not the time of year to go out and start looking and picking mushrooms yet. Okay, you want to wait a few months before you get out there and do this. The Democrats at the national level have not made their case yet as to why they 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 made their case early on why this is good. Then they lost their frames. The Republicans took the frames back from them. They've not reestablished the frames. This is basically very premature, and I think very bad about very bad politics on their part. Are they not trying to? win this argument back now. I mean, you see, see the president doing this, you see Democrats right. in Congress doing yeah. it, they're, they're trying to bring, okay, this is what's going to happen if, if you do away with right. this. You know, kids, you know, pre-existing condition right. exclusions go yeah, away. You're yeah. seeing this from the White House on down. You're yeah. right, there, there's that little pushback. And the opinion polls, you know, the American people have become a little bit equivocal about it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people oppose the current bill, but some say it doesn't go far enough. Yeah. It's really split between, yes, I like it, no, I don't, and then 
the and, middle is. And some of the provisions know, don't vague. take effect right away, so it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to talk about the whole bill because there are certain things that have been pushed mm -hmm. off and, and their, their effective dates are long into the future. I'm intrigued mm -hmm. by Jean's argument concerning the timing, but I, I think that you've got to start reacting at some point, and mm -hmm. uh, this is about as good a time as, uh, as that. And besides, we're, this is state government. I mean, mm -hmm. we've, got to, we've got to react. Democrats have to react here. All right. Our last topic, Governor Kasich this week gave us some more hints about what kind of education system he would like Ohio to have. He named a new director of the governor's office of 21st century education. He's Robert Summers. He's the chief executive officer of Cornerstone Charter Schools in Detroit. Gene Krebs, I'm curious, can we read anything into the naming of a charter school executive to yeah. this education post? Yeah, I think what you're looking at here is there's a classic division. I'm going to give a broad brush statement. Republicans like to support individualistic decisions. Okay, yeah. So, you know, choose your own school, that type of stuff. Democrats, as a rule, broad brush statement, want to, want to support systems, which also supports unions. Okay, so when you look at this, this this guy being named, yes, it's all about an individualized decision as to where you send your child versus support of the system by which your child is being educated. And I think that's an overly broad, overly generalized, but helpful statement. What does this mean for education strategy? Is it just like the prison head who has some experience both in the private prison sector and in the public prison sector looking to... First of all, Mike, it's, it, it is, this is consolidating education policy in a way that it hasn't been in previous administrations. Similar to the way Medicaid mm -hmm. policy has been concentrated under Greg Moody. Uh, new guys brought on board, and all these other groups are going to report to him. The other appointment that didn't get nearly as much publicity, but maybe almost as significant, is, is the new school board member from yeah. Cleveland. Again, mm -hmm. a parent of a... Uh, of children in, in uh, charter schools, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, wants the money to follow the kids, sort mm -hmm. of a Ken Blackwell idea. Mm -hmm. um, she could provide the key vote if they go back and vote on a new board president. We could even see a new superintendent. And could this new education guy be new superintendent? Now, that's a lot of dominoes that have to fall. Mm -hmm. But that's some of the speculation that's out there right now. Because Deb Delisle, the current state superintendent, is, you know, was appointed under the Strickland regime. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're cleaning out even board members. I wouldn't think you'd want to uh, well, board members from the Strickland. I wouldn't think you'd want a state superintendent. And to, to Jean's argument, she was a superintendent of a school system, a school right. district. So yeah. she fits She's into your system argument versus... Individualized. And I'm not saying you had a good argument there, but I'm just saying it fits into it. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with argument, you might yeah. not agree with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's a convenient way to look at it. Joe, is, it, is the argument against the system, uh, you know, the, against the system is that if you start picking your own school, the kids who are un who are unable or parents don't care to pick their own school, those are the folks who get left behind. And, and you know, and I don't know what the answer is. There was a time when I thought that busing was the answer. Busing was essentially abandoned. So there was, it, in effect, the schools are going back to having students that come from the same community, the same neighborhood, that, that hold the same points of view, and we really don't have a lot of cross-pollination yeah. of ideas. And I'd like to see something uh, introduced that will help that within the system, because Gene is right, I, I do believe in the system. So we, we expect to see more charter schools. That's a given. I think what you, my personal opinion is what you may see, you may see more empowerment of the student, i.e., for young ones, the parents, where are you going to send your child, what type of education they're going to get. I think that would be a general frame you may see. 
Uh, if you look at the Strickland's previous education plan, it was all about funding the system. This time, I think you may see funding the student. I know that for a lot of people, this sounds like, what's the difference? It's a huge difference at the policy level, though, as you see the budget start to break and out. Does that help the idea that he wants more vouchers because he, he wanted to expand it, the, the Ed Choice program? It opens up then a whole opportunity for vouchers, charters, individual student slash parental decision as to how the child is educated versus the system structured, which is much more from a systematic structural standpoint. Okay. We've got to get to our final off-the-record parting shots from our panel. We'll start with Joe Moss. Yes, and in, you know, kind of a sad comment, I think. If Penn National's plans go through, then I'm sad to witness the passing of Beulah Park. Beulah Park, of course, was uh, opened up uh, in 1923, being the first thoroughbred racing venue in the state of Ohio. I just hope that Penn National does uh, infuse uh, cash into at least the industry. I uh, would like to see the Ohio's uh, horse industry uh, uh, grow. Gambling companies moving it to date. If all goes as planned. Looks like. Yeah. Gene. Um, the recent Super Bowl has focused attention once again on the Green Bay Packers, who are the only honestly named professional team in sports at all. They are community owned by 12 by 112,000 shareholders in the Green Bay region. And if you root for the Browns, it's the, actually the Lerner family Browns, and it's actually the Brown family Bengals. Um, and a enterprising federal politician, federal politician could start very interesting antitrust hearings on how our professional teams and how they hold their communities hostage for expensive stadiums. You could, you could argue, Gene, that the Packers are a government-owned franchise, and they're the successful franchise. <laughs> Daryl. <laughs> Thanks for setting me up. <laughs> I, I think this whole b battle over collective bargaining, um, it, it stands to be the, the bloodiest we've seen in Ohio. Uh, it's not going to be as expensive as the gambling issues, but I think it's going to be much more emotional. Uh, these legislators are going to go back to their district, and it's one thing to face down the unions over here, but your local school teacher and all that, and I also predict if it, if it does get through the legislature that there will be a referendum and a really fun election this November. And Karen. And first of all, I need to say that I, I like Gene, but I can't appear to agree or disagree with him. So let's just say that. <laughs> but uh, when we saw the run-up to the November election, a lot of research came out of the Buckeye Institute, a conservative think tank. There's going to be a progressive side that's going to start doing more research and possibly featuring people that we may know who might have been in office fairly recently. So it shows that the State House is still a very partisan battleground. Okay. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Please check us out online. We're on Facebook and on Twitter. You can connect to all that great stuff at our website, WOSU.org. For our crew, for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.